Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. Today it's part three of the best defenders uh, of the last 15 years. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, before we even get going, just Co- Cody, how are you? <laughs> how are you holding up? How are you feeling? How are you doing? Man, well, I mean, beyond this whole like basketball journey, which we'll get to in a second, I think we need to take a little bit of a detour, Ben, because Ben, I went off and I, I, I turned on my television to watch a new program. You have a, a TV? Pro- yeah, I, I guess I have a TV. I thought everything was just streamed on my computer here, but I wa- wandered into my living room. I turned on my TV and here, Ben, I'm like, you know what? This documentary about Will Chamberlain seems interesting. So I'll turn it on. Lo and behold, uh, there you are appearing uh, yeah. multiple times in there. Yeah, the documentary about Will Chamberlain. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you finally watched it. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you were able. Did you have any uh, lingering impressions from uh, finally seeing it? Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know what my analysis is beyond that, but I kind of liked how they really got. You know, they got really into Wilt's psychology a little bit. Yeah, I think some yeah. of the stuff, especially in the last episode, where they're kind of like pondering his whole like caring attitude and then his his impending death and it got really deep and and kind of dark in a thoughtful way and that's when i was like oh this is this is a documentary so i I really appreciated that it went to like a bunch of different places in wilt's life that i'll be honest i just didn't know about yeah of course we had the discussion a couple episodes back if you want to check that out uh with the directors of the documentary and if you haven't seen it it is available on uh paramount plus with showtime showtime documentary if you have paramount plus you can stream that whenever you want. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned that. I thought you were going to say that you finally like watched uh, a new television show because you're you're always lagging on those like <laughs> Succession. Have you seen Succession? You've seen that one. Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I saw that the there's few. a show called uh, Game of Thrones on TV. I was like, oh, maybe I'll get to that in the next couple. of years. You haven't seen that at all, right? Nah, not a second of it. Yeah. Not a second. Uh, okay. Well, we'll 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 cross that bridge when we get there. Today we have something much harder than than sitting on the game of the throne of the game of thrones um it's trying to figure out how in the world to select the best small defenders of the last 15 years why have we chosen the last 15 years for this series i don't know because the pace and space (laughs) change is like i don't know seven eight nine years old that felt too small we didn't want to go too far back 15 is a nice round number and then with the big men, Cody, I feel like we had a better kind of ability to draw a line around what we were doing. Where's the value come? Paint protection, shot blocking, awareness, rotations, some, some versatility, how, how much you can get to the perimeter, uh, communication on the back line. I feel like those things have cleaner data points both now and historically to help me look at what I see on film or look at more granular data you can track and say, okay, this guy's probably worth X amount or in this range, in this ballpark. Then you get to the wings, it gets a little murkier. We talked about that last week. You know, there were some people saying like, well, why didn't you, why didn't you discuss OG Ananobi? Um, And those are good questions because the value between a lot of top wings isn't that large. I didn't bring him up. I, I, I won't speak for you. I didn't bring him up because I didn't think I could get him as a, a legit candidate for my top five when you stack up the top five guys we have. But yet again, there you have someone who's very versatile, has a lot of paint skills. Um, I, but then you say like, well, where do you 
where does he fall off? Maybe he's a little bit more slow-footed, doesn't rotate as quickly, isn't quite as vertical at the basket, but he's very good. I mean, if someone came along and said, like, I have a similar list, but OG is number five, um, I don't know how much I would really disagree with that necessarily because the players get more jammed together, right? And now today we have the small, the smalls, and um, I, I mean, just good luck. Just good luck, Cody. Yeah, and l- like you were just saying, those those margins, trying to figure out like the value, it's so much more truncated now when it comes to these guards. Because it's like, all right, how much is a single guard actually moving the needle for a team on defense, right? Because we've talked about quite a bit. It's going to be the big men that move the needle a lot more. The smalls, you know, it's not very clear exactly how much it is. And when you get to like the top five, top six, top seven, whatever it might be, it's really hard to even be like, this player is this much better than somebody else, and why is it that they're doing this? And, oh, this person can can dodge screens better, but how much does that actually add? It's like, oh, right, well, this person maybe gets blown by a little bit more, but they make some more better plays in the back line. How does that factor into it? And when you're really working on these smaller margins, it's a lot more difficult to, like, concretely be like, yep, this is 100% who my top five is. And I went back and forth. I had somebody that was number two. He went down to number five. I'm not even sure if he's on my list right now. It's... It, it honestly been probably the most time I've ever spent preparing for a single podcast, and I still could use like another three months to prepare for it. Yeah, I think I think if, as we said last time, this for me in my process traditionally I would consider preliminary, which is why I wanted to do this series because I think especially when you get to guards, it's really going to take a long period of time, both for studying these particular candidates that we're going to talk about. Some of them I've already studied recently because they're recent candidates, but just doing the justice that needs to be done, the due diligence. But then Cody, more importantly, and I think this leads us to a philosophical topic that I think we should start with before we start rattling off names. And and the more important philosophical idea is how is the value of perimeter defenders changing as the game has changed in the last decade or so we we you know 20 years ago is a lot more isolation a lot more post play the game was slower grindier rebounds were maybe more of a thing because there was so much traffic in the paint and maybe you could differentiate a little bit more as an offensive or defensive rebounder uh today it feels like tons of screening action everywhere more movement Pick and roll is kind of replaced isolation in many ways. It's not to say you won't see isolation or you, or teams won't use pick and roll. James Harden's Rockets are the most famous. Uh, they won't use pick and roll to set up uh, an isolation possession and get a switch and a mismatch. But it just feels like the dynamics are changing. There's more shooting on the court than ever. So does that make the three-point line, the perimeter, um, more get more attention or have more volume as a high value area compared to the paint. And these are all things rolling around in my head. And I just don't have a great feel for the data. I would consider the data emerging on this because I don't like to look at one or two players when it comes to figuring out how valuable screen navigation is. I like to look at 50 guys who look like really good screen navigators over a decade and then compare it to 50 guys who on film, we know struggle getting around screens, stuff like that. So This is the murkiest of the episodes for me. I think we're basically carrying the basketball ring into Mordor here to to try to figure out what the heck we're going to do when we get to the great Mount Doom. Um, Because that's what this feels like. It feels like we're climbing up Mount Doom. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this about 
the value of these guys? Could you, maybe we should talk about at the end, like where we would place the different positions because it feels like there might be a little bit of a resurgence or renaissance. Maybe that's just a handful of great defenders coming into the league recently at this position. But it also has me thinking that the role and the shape of offense and the style of offense in the NBA might be more conducive to these guys having bigger impact than they had 15 years ago. I'm not trying to spoil anything. I'm not going to spoil anything on my list, but I do think there's no know you have where... Matisse Thibel number one, and no one else is even <laughs> close. We don't need spoilers for that. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Wait, we, we were supposed to make a list beyond number one? We're not just talking about <laughs> Thibel the whole time? What, what, what my point was going to be is in the last few years where switching defense has become much more in vogue, you know, you go back a decade, you go back 15 years, you don't see defensive schemes where people are switching all over the place, right? You go back to even like 2008, 2009, most teams still have like some kind of a lumbering four and a and a five out there too, so they're not really doing the switch everything. Whereas like when you go to a switch everything type of defense or scheme, all of a sudden your point guard can be a little bit bigger. They can switch around and showcase their skills on a few other positions. So I think that element has actually made it so in the last few years, we've actually seen, like you said, an uptick in a lot of these guards that provide a lot of value, just A, because of the scheme of, of being able to switch and that style of play, but B, because they're just getting bigger, they're able to do a little bit more on defense. And I also think, especially from like, I don't know, 2019, 2020, it felt like there was a lot more free reign for offensive players to kind of do whatever they wanted. It feels like in the last maybe year or so, uh, defenders on the perimeter can be a little bit more physical. So maybe that's even showing up here. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that has happened in the last 15 years that, yeah, I think contributed to maybe the last few years producing a lot more of these kinds of guys. Man, I'm looking at my list and I'm realizing these are all big guards. Mm-hmm. Just to your point. I, also, I don't have a list. I, we're gonna we're gonna do it on the fly. I don't know how I feel or what order to place these people in because it's splitting hairs, and we'll get into it uh, right now, I guess. But uh, the guys I have at the top are all big. To your point, they're six three, six four, maybe pushing six five, and that's a that's a really fascinating thing to consider because of all the switching. Uh, because of the way offense has changed as well. You don't need that floor general, that Brevin Knight or Rajon Rondo 2008 to run your offense. I'm going to dribble 86 times. Well, we run the offense and wait for the screening action, and then we can either get a post or an isolation in the pinch post or whatever. That that style of player, the traditional, quote-unquote, traditional point guard, the pure point guard, that has been phased out to a degree. Um, you can be 3 and D if you can shoot. But what you're looking for, whether you're 6 feet or 6'4 or 6'7, is an offensive engine who can initiate, pressure the defense with his scoring, and then play make. The big, you know, the Luka Doncic, James Harden, 6'4", 6'5", doesn't matter. LeBron James, these guys are functionally the lead of the offense. And when LeBron James came into the league, they were like, oh, LeBron James, you do that most of the time, but we have to have Eric Snow dribble sometimes. (laughs) It's very important that Eric Snow come up and dribble. Eric Snow maybe is a bad example because he is more of these modern players, you know, 6'3", 6'4", defensive archetype. But maybe there's something happening on offense as well, Cody, where you just don't need as many little guys out there. So if you can be like a 6'3", 6'4", guard, that can pass a little bit, that can, you know, play, um, shoot a little bit, whatever whatever it takes to fit into the system now. 
oh, all of a sudden, now you're just a bigger body out there in the defensive ecosystem. And so if you're really good, maybe you're not that different than a wing in your overall value, something like that. That's a great point where some of these forwards, and it's interesting because we're trying to go through and maybe some of these guys we're going to be talking about are connected to some bigger forwards that can handle some of these handling duties. You're not, you don't have to do all of the handling responsibilities. So you don't necessarily need like a super quick guy that's going to handle all of that, right? Like you said, they can do a bunch of other things. Uh, you want to talk about some of these guys? Let's maybe start with some small players that I think, you know, I think initially I thought we were going to make my list. I thought they were going to be in the top five, Ben. And then I went under the hood and I was like, you know what? I don't think they can start holding a candle. Uh, you want to start rattling off some names here? Yeah, I'm going to let you... Uh, well, you fell on the sword first in, episode, in episode two. Um, I guess a, a small name who I'm not quite sure about. Okay, can I ask you about Kyle Lowry? Yeah, Kyle Lowry's definitely a guy that I considered here. Yeah, but, so he's he's yeah. smaller, right? And there, are, there are, is at least one other player I can think of. Um, I guess I'll just say him and we can talk about it. Chris Paul. Yep. The, these guys are bowling balls. They're shorter. They're not vertical. They don't necessarily have a 6'8 wingspan, but they're very intelligent defenders. They can be very positionally sound, especially in Chris Paul's case. They have great hands. And Kyle Lowry has great hands as well. Uh, Lowry has his own personal form of rim protection called <laughs> taking or making up charges. Um you know, they're not always a charge. They're just him launching himself. Was he a stuntman in another life? Do you know if they had that minor at Villanova, the stunt stunt manning? Maybe the great basketball programs should have uh, academic departments just devoted to how to teach people to, to take charges like Kyle Lowry. So it's a different thing than a bigger player, right? But how much value do you get out of that? How much value do you get out of communicating and knowing where to be when you're small and when people are still mismatch hunting you, when you still, uh, you know, you rotate over at the rim, but most of the time you're too small to help out. Well, what, what do we do with these guys? And, you know, when you when you ask how much value it is, I'm not going to be able to put a numerical value on it, but a couple of things that, like, stood out, especially, like, Chris Paul is probably one of the first guys that I really started going into, and I'm like, I have a feeling he's going to be in my top five, and then he just wasn't when I started going further. And, you know, he has great instincts. Like you said, great hands, can play at the nail. Somebody gets down low, and he has his own form of rim protection, which is stripping a guy right underneath the rim. Like, if a big man brings it down, he's going to get his hands on it. Are those right? blocks now? Are those being yeah. counted by the – Chris Paul averages like four blocks a game if we counted yes. them that way? Yeah. <laughs> the Chris Paul block. But, like, there are some things where, like, he digs at somebody that's driving, right? And then they kick it out, and he's recovering to try and contest him. And, like, he's athletic, he's quick, but, like, the contest is so much lower where the, from where the guy is shooting, right? So it's not even, like, a rim protection thing. It's, like, a perimeter protection thing where the guy's like, all right, it's almost like no one's actually here to contest me. So, like, maybe straight-on point-of-attack type of defense, if that was the only thing we were talking about, somebody like Chris Paul would probably have a better chance. But, like, at the end of the day, the size is just so significant, which is, again, why some of those, uh, why the bigs are probably the most valu valuable defenders that we looked at. Yeah, Chris Paul has some some nice regular season statistics as well. Um, and what surprises me is they look better in Los Angeles than they do before his injury when he was younger. And if, if you weren't around to see it or if you're like me and you've just forgotten everything that's happened in the past, uh, 
Chris Paul was a bouncy, springy, twisty tornado of an athlete at like six feet tall or whatever he he is. And back in New Orleans before he was injured, he actually has weaker kind of like high level indicators. We talked about those indicators before adjusted plus minus studies, uh, estimated plus minus from the dunks and three website, things like that. So EPM estimated plus minus when he gets to Los Angeles, he was third in the league among guards in 2014. He was uh, 2015. I want to say top 10 among guards. I don't have the exact number here. And then 2016, he was fifth again, 2017, he was sixth again. So um, this is talking like top 30, top 50 in the league among all overall defenders in that stat and looking completely worthy of all defensive first team selections and things like that, despite not being quite athletic. My big question that I still want to answer with a, with a future video one day is just like, how destructive was he as a defender what, when you really get under the hood and go there, uh, especially if you consider offensive responsibilities and he could have slightly less offensive responsibilities. I think those are interesting questions. But uh, yeah, I don't know what to do with these smaller players and I kind of have them on the outside looking in. Yeah, 100%. And then Kyle Lowry, who is just really, really fascinating because he's probably the least athletically gifted of any of the guys that were considered here. Because I think when you think of like, you know, you think about defenders, you're thinking about like really long athletic types of guys making plays at the rim, jumping out in the passing lanes. Kyle Lowry was a lot more, I shouldn't say talk in the past tense. We saw some of these wily plays in the 2023 playoffs, a lot more of a cerebral player, a lot more physical, right? He's got such a lower center of gravity. And I think even more than Chris Paul, he's just like stronger down there. So it's tougher to back him down. It's like a much shorter Chuck Hayes type of situation. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's just when you stack it up against some of these other guys, and maybe, you know, you look at some of those EPM numbers, you say Chris Paul's top five, top six, top 10, or whatever else. It's interesting because maybe in like 2015, 2016, there's a little bit more of a dearth of these guard defenders. I'd be interested to see if Chris Paul was in his peak right now, what some of those impact metrics looked like stacked up against some of these other guys we'll talk about. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, any other smaller guards here, names that are similar you want to throw around before we move on to a, another uh, <laughs> philosophical concept that we have to tackle? Well, I think another guy is Mike Conley. What do you think about Mike Conley? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I didn't really consider Mike Conley. Okay. Uh, I, I think he he falls in this category as well. I just think he's weaker than the other two guys. I think there's way too many games where he's he's the weaker point of attack guy. Um, teams are going after him. He's very small. 
He's not super physically strong like the other guys. So I think he has a lot of skills back in the grit and grind days that made him a good point guard defender. But I think he's kind of a level behind the best guys we're going to talk about here. I think something about Mike Conley is I think in 2013, there's a really interesting spike with his defensive impact metrics. Like you go back, I think I remember the first time I saw it with uh, the old school PIPM, Jacob Goldstein's uh, metric, where it was like a huge spike in 2013. And I think like DRAPM numbers look like that. I don't know what EPM looks like, but it, it just looks like it's one of the best defensive seasons of all time. And yeah. I honestly, it's just an anomaly when you when you go back and you look at it and you look at some of these other seasons, you, you look like you want to say something. To well, I, th- I think with those things, especially on defense, I'm very suspicious of a single season spike like that and then you start looking at the context and a lot of these statistics let's you cited PIPM um, Jacob Goldstein took that with him to Washington it used to be in the public domain but that has a lot of plus minus informing it so that's a huge part of the equation is how good is the team when you're on the court how good is the team when you're off the court and that makes sense that's a piece of information that we're really really interested in if we could cut out noise and we could scramble the you know if we could have a random generator and play a million games with a, th- a million different permutations of teammates we wouldn't need anything else we could just look at your impact on the scoreboard but we can't do that and so as good as those stats are and as informative as they are they're still subject to noise and things like that and they're subject to this fancy thing called multicollinearity, which is when you play with someone else and you can't differentiate, you can't tease out that, you know, Kobe Bryant is causing Derek Fisher to look very good in plus minus stats because they share the court all the time. So with one year spikes, I look at stuff like, oh, okay, so all of a sudden we get the grit and grind Memphis Grizzlies and like some other all defensive guys, you know, Tayshaun Prince, Tony Allen, Marcus Hall, these guys start showing up. And then the stat, quote unquote, thinks that Mike Connolly just all of a sudden out of nowhere had the best defensive season. If that were to be sustained, Cody, with different teammates, maybe gets traded to another team, it's the same, then I wouldn't view it as an anomaly. But when I see those single season things like that, I tend to think like, okay, there's probably something else with the lineups and the teammates going on. The Indiana Pacers had this. You know, I think there would be an interesting sort of case against Paul George that we were talking about last week is that any of those numbers for the Pacers, the lineups used to like go in and out together all the time. Frank Vogel used to be like, all right, George Hill, uh, George Hill, uh, David West, and Paul George, maybe Roy Hibbert. We want you guys on the court at the same time. So all of those stats have a hard have a hard time differentiating like which one or two of these guys is driving it because when I see them on the court, they look very good. When they go to the bench, they don't look as good. Uh, that kind of stuff is hard to figure out. you have anything to say you want to move on to ball hawks? Well, okay. Oh, ball hawks. I was going to say, if I can throw out a couple more small guys, you can talk about any of them. I don't know if they fall into the... You know what? Let's actually move on to ball hawks. Here. Okay. I don't. I don't want to step on your feet a little bit. I'm, I'm going to let you drive the train for a second. Well, I just there's some philosophical bridges we have to cross in this episode, and the you know the quintessential ball hawk to me is uh, Avery Bradley, Boston Celtic days. Um, not that he couldn't do this when he was older, and in fact, in the 2020 season when he went to Los Angeles, he just he just looked like a machine. Uh, he ended up not going to the bubble. The Lakers won the championship anyway with their defense. It was a great defensive performance from that team. But the ability for him to guard other guards 
quicker guards and stay in front of them and jab at the ball and disrupt what they're trying to do. He has some really interesting videos, I want to say on YouTube, talking about his defensive tactics and his approach to defense and how he basically wants to be the aggressor as the defender and and bait and funnel offensive players to a specific spot or direction. And then when he knows he's doing that, he can move them and attack from there. But this is all isolated to like, how are you doing against the point guard? And the one thing I would say he was weaker in as a defender would be off ball stuff, would be awareness, would be leaving his man, would be focusing on a back cut or tagging a cutter into the paint or something like that. And so you get this thing And I think it goes back even to someone like Kobe Bryant getting all defensive awards. If you are really good in particular possessions at staying in front of a scorer or a ball handler who's quick, who also plays guard, you can have a nice little highlight reel. And you can have key moments and key games on national TV where Jeff Van Gundy or someone else, we all notice and celebrate like, wow, look at that defense by... Avery Bradley. Patrick Beverly might be another guy I put in this category, Cody. You're slapping the floor. You're yelling, right? You're, you're, you're making a play on a 6-3 guard on the other side of the ball who's trying to score. But where else do you provide value and how valuable is that? That's the real question with these guys. I think from, from what I remember, what I was watching, Patrick Beverly felt a little bit more valuable off-ball than even Avery Bradley. I think he was a lot more aware. He was much better at digging. He was much better at recovering, sprinting across the court, and things like that. I just think when it comes to Patrick Beverly, he's almost like... He's almost a little too physical, a little too being the dog on the court and like causing some issues. And like you're just you're you're fouling too much. You're kind of being a little too aggressive closing out here. And I think that actually take he should have taken a little bit off. But I think when you have that kind of like motor, when you're like that is your personality, there's there's no turning back from it. I, I agree with you. By the way, I think Beverly actually um, probably has more strengths off ball than we think of. But just this idea of like a ball hawk. Um, I'm not sure if there's another one. How, how do you feel about Eric Bledsoe in this category? Another smaller guard who really can specialize point of attack. I mean, he's athletic enough that he can even make plays at the basket. But this is another one who's kind of in this area. And all these guys look good in these impact metrics, these these top-down, high-level kind of fuzzy stats that we've been citing throughout this series, but they don't look great. So it's an interesting thing. Like Avery Bradley has one really good uh, adjusted plus minus run um, four years when he's in Boston where he looks good, but not great. So, you know, very good guard defender, but where does he stack up among the best small defenders of the last 15 years? And the same thing you just cited for uh, Beverly. Beverly has a couple years where he's like top 50, top 60 in the league in EPM, things like that. So um, I mentioned a couple names there, but like Eric Bledsoe, for instance, he was a Milwaukee guy for a while. How, how do you feel about him? I think, you know, if we were to make a list specifically of like the best point of attack guys in the last 15 years, there's a non-zero chance that Bledsoe's number one on my list. I think when you no, just put number him... Number one? I, I think so. I, non-zero chance. I didn't do okay. the homework on that. Okay. But I think when you have, just like you have a point guard... You want to prevent this guy from touching the paint or getting an action, going around a screen or something like that. And maybe it's because I just watched a lot of him in Milwaukee. So I, I obviously have that bias. But I think Eric Bledsoe, you know, he's he's very strong. Like, he's built like a running back. I think running backs are big. That's that's tennis, right? 
Yeah. So you have these tennis players who are running backs. He's just like built like this, but he's also so quick and athletic that like even if he's chasing somebody uh, on drop coverage, he can recover to them quickly enough and contest. But again, some of those contests aren't quite as strong because he's very short. I I think he's like maybe listed at six one. It wouldn't surprise me if he's one of these like six foot, maybe a shade under without shoes on. I don't think he has like six nine arm span kind of thing. So again, you get him off ball, you have him recovering to the corner. He's just not going to be able to get there as quickly as somebody else that's a little bit longer, a little bit a little bit taller, things like that. But pure speed, pure strength. But I don't necessarily know, especially with like brave, bravery, <laughs> Avery Bradley or Bledsoe. If brave you can, Avery, yeah. Brave yeah. Avery, if you can switch them too much. I don't see them taking somebody like, I don't know, somebody that's 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, in, the, in the pinch post area and doing a lot of work against them. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so it sounds like neither of us are going to have any of these guys in our top five are we are we on the same page so far we're on the same page okay i have a couple other questions about a few other players um but i also want to give you a chance to just name names sometimes Mm. sometimes we don't get to do that until later in the show uh i think we've talked about a good number of guys before really getting to the meat of the competitors for me are there some names you want to throw out there cody well, I think in the same in the same vein as point of attack, just a little bit bigger. What about somebody like Clay Thompson? I, I just think those guys are weaker defenders overall than what we're talking about. I think Clay Thompson. I think it's a good call because Clay Thompson, I think, leg- legitimately struggles away from the ball mm-hmm. sometimes, but he puts together really good positive possessions on point of attack, and at his size, he's able to switch and guard smaller players pretty successfully and then that gets into the whole interesting thing about like your scheme what what kind of scheme are you in um you know if you play next to mike conley do you then never guard point guards and if you are in golden state and you play next to steph curry do you guard point guards a ton and so that becomes your specialization and and maybe rajon rondo is another guy we can mention here because he had Kevin Garnett and Kendrick Perkins behind him. And in 2008, even when he was younger, someone like James Posey off the bench. They just had a lot of defenders. Tony Allen as well in 2010 was there in Boston. So if you're Rondo, you know you can pressure the ball more. You know you can take more chances. You know that's part of the scheme. Um, You have thoughts on any of these guys? Uh, Rondo's interesting. Rondo's interesting because, you know, I think it's actually really impressive to go back and watch him. It looks like he does have some good positional awareness. He is unbelievably lanky. Like, I think one thing that stands out about him, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember some uh, commentator at one point was like, Rajon Rondo has larger hands than Chris Bosh. So it must have been one of those Heat series. But he can make a lot of those plays off ball. He can play at the nail and be a lot more disruptive than a lot of other guys who are 6'1". Like, it's, it's pretty shocking the sorts of plays he can do. He's really good at, at getting on-ball steals at we- as well. Um, no, I think he's a very talented defensive player, but, you know, I think he can kind of get lost off-ball, maybe ball watch a little bit more than I'd like, maybe go for those steals a little bit more, maybe he gambles more than some of these other guys. Uh, but ultimately, he has a lot of the tools that I think a top-tier defender would have. Yeah, and there's this thing called playoff Rondo, which I think is very real, where he is a more impactful player in the postseason than he is in the regular season. I don't know how good that makes him overall. We're only focused on defense here. And if you look at his postseason plus minus from 2009 to 2017, 
Why that long, by the way? Why do we go beyond his prime? Just because I'm trying to get a larger sample, to be fair to the what we've talked about in the previous episodes. Uh, great numbers, Cody. His teams were six points better per 100 when he was on the floor. Defensively, obviously, he played on good defenses. Most of that sample is from his time in Boston when he was at his best 2009 to 2013. So uh, there's something very interesting about a guy like Rondo with his hands, with his length. And then the other thing, especially back in that era, is he was a crazy good defensive rebounder for a guard. So just positional awareness, you're always in good position. Um, You can read the ball off the rim as you're sliding over to help and there's a shot. Little things like that. I wonder how much they add up defensively compared to a guard that, I don't know, just never rebounds or is looking to leak out. Uh, Or another thing I thought of in, in scouting some of these guys is... If you are a defensive specialist, does that mean you never get out of position offensively? Let me say it again. You never get out of position offensively, meaning you're not always trying to... Russell Westbrook is like going 100 miles an hour toward the basket and he misses a layup and now he's down under the basket because he went flying in for a layup and it might be like a little five-on-four situation coming back in semi-transition the other way. But do defensive specialists never do that? And how much do we have to worry about your offensive role impacting what happens as you come back in in, in transition, either cross-matching or as the play is up-tempo. These are just little things in my head as I was thinking about these players that it's like, how much does that tweak what we're seeing in the data? How much does that tweak how we think about these guys? Because just like on offense, we might not think about transition a lot, but I think the exchange and, and the interplay there might be influencing how we think about players a little bit. That's a really interesting point, because if you are like a traditional 3 and D guy, chances are your job is going to be like, take an open shot if you have it, and when the star offensive player does shoot, you got to get back and stop transition. Exactly, so you're yeah. necessarily going to be there to to stop some of these higher uh, value possessions for the opposing offense. No, I, I don't know what to make of all this stuff, which is hmm. why we're going to figure out how to do my list on the fly. Um, I have another question for you, Cody. Yeah. Oh, I love questions. I have a couple big athletic star offensive players written down here. That Tell I wanna... me the one I was about to say. Tell me the one I was about to say. I don't, the one you were going to say, um, well, I have two in mind, so I, I'll flip a coin. I think you were going to say Victor Oladipo. He was number two on my list. but we uh, He was number two. I went the wrong way. Is Dwayne Wade the other one? <laughs> Dwayne Wade is yeah. the other one. Yeah, Dwayne Wade and Victor Oladipo. And of course, Wade specifically might be the best shot blocking guard in NBA history, uh, quick, long, athletic, cerebral, always thought of him as a good defender. But here we're talking about the top defenders of the last 15 years. I don't know if either of these guys get there, but I also kind of wonder if they were defensive specialists, if they would. Uh, how do you feel about them? Well, let me ask you something about Dwayne Wade, because we're starting in 2008. Do you think he's a better defender in the 2008-2009? Is that his defensive peak? Or do you think it's closer to the championship in 2006? Boy, that's a really good question. Um, I want to say you could at least make the argument that in 2009, he has better tools to have a higher defensive peak. Just Mm. the added muscle and weight gain and just how great he looked physically coming off of the not just the injury but the olympics in the summer of 2008 now in 2006 he was a little more fluid and slippery and wiry i thought as an athlete so it's close but i i kind of feel like 
you could you could make a well you could at the least make an argument for the 2009 season let's put it that way okay I think when it comes to like being a disruptive defender, again, a bigger guy, he has like a six eleven arm span, one of these really lengthy, strong lengthy, lengthy one of these lanky We know what you strong, mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Midwestern me coming out again, just making up words on the fly. Uh but I kind of thought his feet were a little clunkier, like on yep, closeouts, yep. staying in front of guys could get blown by a little bit. If he's he's closing out on somebody on the back corner, they could get by him a little bit quicker. And there were a little bit too many mistakes for me to be like, this is the absolute top of the heap here. Uh, but still like a very good defensive player. But again, he's kind of in the rest of a lot of these other guys where I'm like, there's a little too many things I can pick at uh, where I, I don't quite have you at the top. I agree. But then the question is with someone like Oladipo, he has this one year really only right 2018 where he's in really good shape i i I was watching him uh a year or two prior to that and i was like oh he legit was not in amazing shape before he went to indiana and then got in much better shape but i don't know if i have a great feel at least an estimated plus minus he was 69th overall in the league in orlando before he went there and then in 2018 he jumps to 26th overall which is third among guards but it's just that single season they just have the single playoff series against cleveland and i didn't have enough of a feel for it to really confidently say i'm going to take that version of victor oladipo over these guys i think you got to see him this week what are your thoughts so i think i'm gonna make a big proclamation here this is probably the honorable mention that I could see the argument for him being the highest out of any of these other guys. Mm. And, you know, I think it's maybe the 2019 season. I think he ruptures his, his quad tendon. And he's just never the same player. So we're more or less dealing with, like, a actual prime of, like, a season and a half, right? And so I'm hedging. You know, it's kind of our Jaron Jackson conversation when we were talking about the bigs where I'm like, maybe we go back in a couple of years and he's actually closer to top five than being like number eight or something like that. Victor Oladipo very well could be like number five, number four on my list. Like what I was seeing was he's he's an unbelievable athlete, unbelievable instincts being able to close out. He could recover really quickly. I do think there were times when he fell asleep just for a second off ball that allowed him to make some more of these like close out bar- closeout opportunities where it's like all right if you had read the play you would have actually just been there instead of having to do this but man everything i watched i went back and watched all the clips that i was saving and i'm like this guy is just just unbelievable you go into that playoff series where i think they take the the cavaliers to seven games in the first round of the playoffs i don't know man victor oladipo was incredible and we were robbed of a really really good defensive prime because of his his quad injury Man, Cody, that's another one. Just the entire concept of if you're late sometimes in help situations or maybe if you get beat by half a step, that sets you up to make like a great recovery block or something like that. And we think of that as being better than if you were just there in the first place and completely shut the water off. And I'm not sure that's even remotely close to correct. I I think... It's possible that if you weigh, you know, what's better? Is it better to be beaten by half a step and then always swallow up the shot or to be there in the first place and make the team go someplace else? I could imagine it's pretty close, but I have a hard time seeing being beaten by half a step and going for chase down blocks is always going to be better than being there early. And what being there early does is it makes the defense, it makes the offense go somewhere else and eats up time in the shot clock. And that's the kind of stuff you just never see. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've talked about it a little in prior episodes. So 
That's an interesting philosophical one as well to keep in mind. I am ready to go to the big hitters, I think. Do you have any other more names that you want to get to before I try to figure out how to sort through these candidates and, and make a top five? Let's actually you, – you actually texted me about this earlier, so I think you're just going to – you're going to dismiss this a little bit more. Uh, but another guy that's like a lead offensive guy that I think was interesting enough on defense, uh, what do you think about John Wall? Oh, John Wall. Uh, I don't know if I have a, a feel for him as a, as a great defender, or at least certainly being in this class. Well, okay. you, you, you tell me. You were, you were making a push for him. I mean – I think he's he's kind of falls in the same category as like Dwayne Wade, but I think like if you were to rank those three, it'd go Oladipo, Wade, John Wall for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. But it's like the same sort of idea, just like a strong guy, long can make a lot of these athletic plays. I don't think he quite had the same positional awareness as somebody like Dwayne Wade, but again, somebody out there who you know really impressive ability to just float around the court and make a bunch of plays all over the place. I think he was another one of these shot blocking types of guards that could maybe rotate down, not really adding value through shot blocking at the rim, but can actually contest just because of his his size and length. But I think he's at least interesting enough to bring up here. Okay, I have eight players for five spots. Oh, eight. Okay. And you have a you have a tight top five, right? You're feeling comfortable about your top five. Okay, I have I have a tight top six. Okay, and All I'm right. I'm going to ask you to pick between five and six for me because there's there's a bias element that I think I'm actually trying to go against the bias, and we're going to need some work here. Well, let me start right away with the player that I I'm pretty sure I'm higher than you on, and I'm probably in higher on than most listeners. Although I think some listeners from the fan base will think extremely highly of him for. Good reason. Let's talk about Jason Kidd, who, of course, peaked defensively probably when he was younger, but was still like a ridiculously good defender when he got to Dallas and is part of the 2011 Dallas championship team, plays multiple playoff seasons in Dallas as they kind of reconfigure the ship there to set up that championship team and ultimately get Tyson Chandler. I don't think 2011 was the best Dallas defensive Jason Kidd, but it was fairly close, and we get to go back to 2008 when he was there. But I say that to say, in 2011, Cody, he guarded Kobe Bryant at the end of games. He guarded Dwayne Wade at the end of games in the finals when he was... I guarded Dwayne Wade for for stretches of the finals when needed. Um, Big, smart, crazy quick for his size, crazy disruptive, unbelievable awareness... What do you do with a slightly older version of Jason Kidd stacked up against these guys that we have that I think are going to be from more recent seasons? I'm going to whisper something to you so that the audience doesn't hear. I completely forgot about Jason Kidd. Like, I, I, he wasn't even on my radar. And not because I don't think he's a great... Like, obviously, I think Jason Kidd, we may have said this last year when we were talking about the greatest peaks, that he's probably the best, at least in the conversation for best defensive guard ever at his peak, it completely whiffed. I, I didn't even think about him for a second. So uh, let's put you on the spot. I mean, no okay. no, no one knows that except me. No one else yep. has heard that. It was, it was just a private channel that we created in the recording uh, that no one else can hear. But now that you've had a chance to process that, a slightly older Jason Kidd, like a 2008 Jason Kidd, not going to be quite as quick Still very wily and guily. Still going to run over and knock over coaches when he needs to. Um, how does he? How do you feel about him? I mean, I'm going to completely defer to you on this one. I really don't have, like, off the top of mind. I have 
I don't know what he looked like defensively. I watched a little bit of like the 2011 finals recently. I think when we were to watch, uh, preparing for the wings because I was watching some LeBron throughout that time. And yeah, he stands out, but I, I really can't speak to well, him. Okay, here. so I would say the thing that is really fascinating about him, even when he's older, even in 2008, is he can basically, in that era of basketball, guard ones, twos, and threes. Like he has really good possessions in 2011 against LeBron James. Obviously, unbelievably cerebral, good active hands, crazy quick hands, hands in passing lanes. In the rewatch that I did recently with J.J. Barea, which was a lot of fun, by the way, um, there's a play. I think we did game five of the 2011 finals, and there is a play in the fourth quarter where someone's cutting to the basket for the heat, and I think it might have been a not like an uncontested layup, but it would have been a problem if the pass got through. And whoever he's guarding, like I think he might be guarding LeBron, he might be guarding Wade, sees it, goes to throw the entry, and Kid gets his hand up, his right hand in the passing lane as the pass is thrown, deflects it, Dallas goes the other way for a layup, and it's just like that is the most Jason Kid play I could possibly imagine. So I, I think he's still like a really incredibly impressive monster defender at that point. And of course, to what you said, he's just coming down from a peak that we could argue might be the best point guard or small small defender defensive peak in NBA history. I just think extraordinarily highly of his defensive skills. So let's let's put that on the back burner. Let's put okay. a pin in that. Um, who do you want to talk about next? These are people that we are the heavy hitters. We think are I only have be... seven more players, and I know you're like you have a poster of at least one or two of them on on your wall <laughs> downstairs. So um, give me give me another name. Okay, so there there's actually two guys that I wonder if you have here, but I was probably lower on because of either like minute threshold or health or health. So let's, let's talk health first. I'm guessing one of your guys is Lonzo Ball. Lonzo Ball, I have written down, and then I okay. have parentheses health. Yes. And I have another. I have two more players in this category called minutes and health. I wonder yeah. if we have the same ca- same players. Let me start with Lonzo. Uh, 2022 Lonzo Ball on the Chicago Bulls when he was healthy. Oh my chef's kiss, <laughs> Cody. Get a cigar, get a glass of wine, get whatever you like to do, kick back, watch him destroy just the size. Very similar to Jason Kidd in a sense, in that they're bigger guys who have quick feet, who are really cerebral about where to go on the court and use their hands in that capacity. And it's and the motor of both of them is is extremely high when they're going. So I think the hard thing with Lonzo is just like, does he... Does he have a season or seasons that qualify? Do we have a big enough sample of him healthy? Because I think healthy Lonzo Ball, which is why we're talking about it, there is an argument to be made that he's a he's a top five small defender, quote unquote guard defender of the last 15 years. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I scouted him a little bit. I was blown away, but I'm like, I, I feel like this is it's just a little bit against the spirit of what I'm looking at here. Okay, um, the next guy in this category gets a little trickier. Yeah. Also super small sample. This one's less, less about health and more about minutes, and that's Gary Payton the second, the, uh, the gauntlet, as we like to call him around here. And it's just like, can he, can he be a 30, 35-minute-per-game player if he's not 
per possession does he make up for that? And I'm also wondering what he looks like in different schemes. Is it harder for him to stay on the court in today's NBA without having players like Steph Curry next to him? How much should we penalize Cody for guys who are so sort of like specialized as defenders that it's hard for them to play 35 to 40 minutes? And I was looking up the situations where GP2 was in the lineup or starting or just like in that role, they wanted him to play a lot. And he plays like 26 to 32 minutes in those games last year. And I'm just wondering, you know, is there really a situation where you're ever going to have Gary Payton second above 25 minutes per game? And if we're thinking at the end of the day about like your per game impact, how much you really move the needle in the regular season or in the playoffs for trying to get through uh, four rounds and win a championship, the minutes thing is is a little tricky for me there. I mean, that that's absolutely my sticking point. I don't think he's ever surpassed 18 minutes a game in the playoffs or the regular season in any season he's played. Um, but if you were to extend that out and he was actually able to play at the level of defense that he plays with like 32 minutes a game or something like that, I don't know. Are we talking about number one on the list? Are we talking about number two or three? He's, he's absolutely right up there if he can extend it out because Gary Payton the second is the athleticism, the aware, the, the athleticism, the athleticism, <laughs> Ben. Good Lord. So, yeah, that it, it feels like a cop-out maybe, but that's why I didn't have him. Well, not just the athleticism for a highlight block or something like that, but, um, I mean, his reach, his hands, just how destructive he is guarding the ball, and then he can stay with you around screens, and then he, he's like 6'10", but he's 6'2". I don't understand how... He, he just guard... Oh, you guard this wing. You guard a point guard. Guard anyone. How, is he a center? Is he a point guard? I don't even know what he is. And that goes back to what we said at the top about this renaissance of players coming in. All these guys that we just mentioned, Gary Payton is like probably 6'3", but he plays enormous. He is an, he's one of the biggest 6'3 basketball players I've ever seen. Lonzo Ball's like 6'6". Jason Kidd is 6'4". All the rest of the guys we're going to talk about are big, and that just allows them to guard multiple positions in today's game. It allows them to not be mincemeat in the paint. It allows them to not be mincemeat on switches and the glass and things like that. And my guess is... Every every box you can check and just be a little bit more solid in is just a little bit of value that you get and that adds up compared to like a six-foot player that we talked about earlier. And that's not to say that there aren't six-foot players out there that could also play big and be the six-foot version of Gary Payton. But I'm just looking at my list and I'm most comfortable with these guys and they're all they're all larger. Yeah, absolutely. So we knock out these two guys. How many does that leave left? Or are you down to six now? I have six guys for five spots. I, hey, have six, I, I got six I, guys too. I have six guys for five spots. Um, we should just start with the elephant in the room. The what the long the long time uh, listeners they it's what they want to know. They want to they want to know what we think about this. I mentioned it earlier. The third guy in this category for me, Cody, is Matisse Thybul. <laughs> Um He's just his own category. Well, he's just like, does he play enough minutes? Is he too specialized? Mm. Is he Matisse is also hard in a sense to rank because I think if you were to look at his regular season impact only and how destructive he is and you say we're going to put him in the right situation and I think Philadelphia is was fairly close with Joel Embiid behind him and you say you're, you're a coach and you're more comfortable and you say okay 
do your thing, baby. Like, just get behind everyone, run around, be chaotic, be nuts. I think his regular season impact would stack up pretty well with any of these guys. I mean, if you look at the metrics we've been talking about, in 2021, Matisse was first among guards in estimated plus minus in the entire NBA. He was second overall among all players. In 2022, he was second among guards and third overall among all players. And if I'm remembering off the top of my head, the guard that was ahead of him was either super low minutes or someone who we wouldn't consider a guard, we consider him a wing. So basically the exact same thing, like first among guards, top three among all defenders in the league. Where I get more concerned and where I think his career has been interesting so far, and it'll be interesting, like really fascinating to see what happens in Portland I get concerned about a playoff setting where you need to implement certain things. You want to disrupt what the other team is doing, but Matisse is still in that one mold of like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna let guys go by me and then just get crazy. And it's like, uh, I don't know if that's going to generate quite the same impact. And so when I stack up, like, who do I want on a team? If part of that like question is lingering in my head, I just, especially with like, three or four of these guys. I'm just, I'm just not sure what to do with him. Yeah. He's on my list. Um, <laughs> he, he is not number one though. I'll tell you that he is not number one on my list. And you know, the wrecking ball thing, we've, we've tread this ground so many times, but you know, if you look at any player who's six, six or shorter ever of all time that have played at least a thousand minutes in a season, he's the only one ever to average over two blocks and two steals per 75 possessions. Uh, basketball index, has a statistic called passing lane defense, which is basically like bad pass steals and deflections, and they add it together. It only goes back to 2017, but Thibel has the top two in those numbers. Uh, I didn't write this one down, but I know that the uh, NBA shot charts is a DRAPM for for opposing turnovers, you know, per 100 possessions when a player's on the court. The last three years, Thibel's number one there, so he causes the most turnovers on the court. He's just certifiably maybe the most disruptive perimeter player ever. But like you said, I had to dock him a little bit because you just like stick him in front of somebody. He can get blown by a few times, right? He's kind of just like, I think in the video you said this, it's almost like he prefers playing from behind on guys. He likes poking it away. But also, it is also really effective. He just recovers. He's blocking a shot here. He he just like tell. There's a couple plays, Ben, where I've slowed it down to like half speed, and it looks like I'm watching the Matrix because he's moving yeah, at yeah. regular speed, and everyone else is just like moving. I don't know, man. Uh, j- just an unbelievable player. You can convince me that I'm a little high on him, but I also just can't ignore some of these other things. Well, well, here's the issue though. It's less about him getting blown by, and I think there are many great defenders who can be weak in an area like that and make up for it everywhere else. Uh, Scotty Pippen is one that comes to mind where some of the quicker players he had to defend could get by him a little more than you wanted or a little more than everyone else. But then everything that happens after that in the possession, you're actually like, oh, these aren't the same breakdowns as just someone being totally flat-footed and space-shotted. And, you know, the de- it's more like... Pippen still slides with him. He might peel switch. He might actually come in from behind and guard the other, you know, the big man steps up and Pippen's there. So it's not that Matisse has weak feet in certain situations or that he's having these breakdowns. To me, the thing with him is that he's almost deliberately getting, like that's his instinct. His instinct is to almost get out of position and create chaos because he's so skilled in that area. But that's an individual thing. 
right? The, then the rest of the team has to make up for it. And I, I believe um, some of the coaches have been frustrated with that who have had to coach him before. And maybe that's why you see situations, Cody, where like he's out of the rotation entirely despite these obviously incredible defensive skills, despite these numbers. And that's where it comes back to playoff stuff for me, where I'm just like, man, is it easy to harness the things that Cody loves about Matisse Thibault that I agree are very real? This like matrix-like ability to be disruptive, some of the shot blocking, the hands. Um, he's very active chasing you off screens. Like he's, he's a good defender. He's a really good defender. But the question is, if we're talking about the best of the best defenders in this category, is that something that makes it easier to have an effective playoff defense than some of the other guys? That's where I get a little bit stuck, I think. That's, that's my concern. Okay. And I, I hear all those concerns. I do. I hear all of them. But I also just really highly value all of the other things. And maybe maybe the, the reframing of it is like you hear Greg Popovich talking about young Manu Ginobili. And after a while, it's like, ah, I just had to learn that I had to let him like go out there and do his dance. Thibault's kind of the same way on defense. I don't, he's not the same level of brilliance, but it's like the same category of just like, let's just harness this and let's see where it takes us. I'm glad you brought that up because I had that same thought. But to me, it's asymmetrical. Because on offense, you control the ball. On defense, you need to work as a unit. And I think the thing that people are concerned with with Matisse is that he's making it harder for the other four defenders, not not easier for them. So it still may work for him, right? But in the long run, they're concerned about the other four defenders on the court. Which of these next uh, big names do you want to talk about? Okay, so there's a guy that I'm, I'm interested if you have him here. I'm interested if you have. I, I have a big four. I have a big four. Okay. Yeah. Can we talk about Derek White? No, he's he's not part of my big four. Are you yeah. serious? Yeah, not part of my big four. Okay. We have a uh, we have a difference on our lists then, Benjamin. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna let you make the case for Derek White, who I think is a good defender, but I would not put him in this class of defenders. Interesting. Yeah. When I think of Derek White, when I go back and I rewatch some Derek White, I think he's honestly one of the most fluid switchers of anyone in the league right now. Like, he's just peeling off, joining guys. And I know the Celtics have predicated a lot on switching a lot of their actions. And I think um, he himself isn't, like, a super loud communicator, but he, like, responds instantaneously to communications. And I feel like he's so good at just kind of, like, filling these gaps wherever there's a lot like during the playoffs where he's he's guarded Trey Young he's guarded some of these shorter uh twistier quicker point guard types of things his length allows him to maybe be one of the best like top five shot blocking guards of all time like you look at some of the rim protection numbers it doesn't even make sense compared to a lot of these other guys that are on this list and it's not just an anomaly it's like multiple seasons where he's contesting more at the rim and he's he's holding players under their per, their usual percentages i think in like the passing lane he's not quite as destructive as some of these other guys but his ability to close out on guys his length is like there's multiple times you can see him like chasing michael porter jr or like kevin durant and he's able to get up to the apex of their shot which you don't see a lot from a lot of other these guys um man i don't know i think uh derrick white is one of the most underrated defenders like ever if i'm going to be honest with you and he fits perfectly in the system that boston has so are you talking what years are you talking about for derrick white just recently? Uh, yeah, probably like 2023, honestly. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, it's interesting. Statistically, he I don't think he has a top 75 
EPM season. He doesn't. He, I don't think he hit any of the filters that I used for uh, some of these metrics at all. And then until 2022, then he finally, uh, I think he has like a top 10 defensive EPM season, top 20 this season in 2023. So it would be very recent for him to look look sort of like a contender in any of these statistics. I would agree with you that for the last couple years, he's probably an underrated defender just in terms of how often he gets brought up and what people think about. But I think the thing with White for me is he doesn't communicate as much, I don't think. Um, the awareness is good, but not great. I don't know if I think about him constantly making like incredible plays. I don't know how switchable I think of of him against bigs. He's a little taller. Of course, we're talking about these big guards, but I don't think he's that strong physically when he gets switched on. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like your Clay Thompson question. I just wouldn't think of him as being up here with uh, the other guy. Like, I feel like my big four, you're you're talking about guys that change playoff series. That's kind of what I'm thinking of. And White is more of a good defender on the team. White is White is maybe more to bring it back to where we were with wings last time, like a Danny Green, like like a very good defender who's underrated, who has certain skills, block shots, things like that. But I I don't know. I just have a harder time seeing him in this category compared to some of the guys we're talking about. I think you talk about some of these metrics, but if you look at some of these three-year DRAPM snapshots, from 2020 to 2022, he's 12th in the league in that, and then from 2021 to 2023, he's third in the entire league in that. that right? That's on. That's from NBA shot charts? Yeah, it's NBA shot charts. Yeah, I don't... I mean, I guess I've skirted over this for, like, multiple episodes. I don't... I don't uh, love NBA shot charts as... Uh, an, an APM source. Um, it just looks a little bit more unstable to me than other sources I've seen. So I still use it, but I'm a little nervous about like bringing it up and going, Derek White's one of the five best defenders in the league or something like that. Um, yeah. Don't worry. I'm not basing my entire argument on this. Like I use this and then I take it back and I'm like, oh, what, am I, am I going to see something in there? Are there other things on the film that are going to jump out? And I got to tell you, like, I don't know if there's any of these guys where I had more clips stand out to me than Derek White. And I don't know. I'm going to be on the Derek White train coming up in the next few seasons. Okay. But are your clips mostly from Boston or are you talking about San Antonio? As oh, well? I'm talking Boston. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, so do you think, do you think the trade to Boston uh, helped him? Do you think it was an environment that really showcased his defensive skills? So I think this is an interesting conversation because it brings up multiple of these guys that we're going to be talking about. I think the defensive ecosystem that Boston has actually allows some of these guys to really flourish and stand out as defensive guys. And I think the fact that it's so switchable out on the perimeter, it allows Derek White to kind of play some of that back line, switch out on guys. If he's going to get beat off the dribble, someone else can take that position. He can peel switch off to somebody else. So I think it highlights some of his best uh, attributes. And in terms of guys that I'm like, oh, this guy fits perfectly into this kind of system. Uh, I think that's exactly what Derek White does. Is his style of defense works in the exact way that they, they want it to. Well, I think to some degree the Celtics have made the same bet because they traded Marcus Smart, and I think they, they can get, you know, they think they can get that same thing 
from Derek White, essentially. Um, I mean, how would you compare those two? Smart is the, of course, the the first small since Gary Payton, the Gary Payton Senior, to win a Defensive Player of the Year. He won that in 2022. Um, do you think White can approximate what Smart does? Where do you, where do you see differences between the two of them? Well, I think the main separator for Smart that like stands out so much when you watch is his communication is just on point. Like this is one of the loudest talkers on defense, just kind of setting up everything. I think he has uh, his motor is a little bit higher. He can make some of those kinds of plays. I think uh, even though Derek White has blocked more shots, I think Marcus Smart can make a few more disruptive plays around the rim. Uh, just. Um, I don't know. I guess the rim protection thing for Derek White's probably better. Maybe the strength thing obviously is more for Marcus Smart, but I think Derek White's probably an underrated switcher as well. I think they're mostly losing an organizer on defense, though. Yeah. I think the rim protection thing is really interesting. Most of these guards, if you look at how their teams perform uh, with them on the court versus with them off the court, it's very hard to see signals for their... um, rim protection like we see with bigs certainly and to some degrees with the wings that we talked about last week but I think I think white does have a good signal um, we'll see if we can pull it up in a second because I want to talk about smart first you made such an interesting point he doesn't necessarily block as many shots but that's because he likes the vertical contest technique so he's not trying to block a shot is really fascinating to me. So you won't get that registering in the box score. White is someone who doesn't actually vertically jump to disrupt a lot of shots. He does the Tim Duncan, like, <laughs> get the ball down low, target the ball. So he will register a lot of blocks. Uh, but if you ask me, like, who would I rather have come over and rotate in those situations? It's probably smart. I, I agree with you on the communication. I also think he's much stronger. So he can switch and contain the post against bigger players. Um, I think he's a little better on screens and point of attack. I just kind of think he's like better all around. But of course, part of what the Celtics are doing this season is they're saying, I, I, we think White can be pretty close to smart. How, how, how do you stack them up? Do you think one is clearly better than the other? Oh, yeah. I think, I think Marcus Smart's a better defender than Derek White. Like Derek White is, is out of these guys like number six, but he's at least like the guy that was right in there for getting into the top group. Oh, so he's not in your top five. He, okay. Let's get to that part of the conversation, Ben, because I think you, you talked me into it. He was my conversation for who I want at number five or number six. Okay, okay. By the and way, the guy, the, oh, go on. No, I was just going to say, Derek White does have a little bit of an impact signal. I am remembering correctly. Uh, in San Antonio, the last two seasons, 58% at the rim when he is off the court, 54% at the rim when he's on the court. I don't know if that's noise, but um, we usually don't see much of a change in on-off for smaller players around that basket area. But, of course, Derek White just has good on-off anyway because he's a, he's a good defender and, and you know looks plenty competent in these metrics. But, uh, sorry, keep going. I cut you off. You're going to be angry about this. But again, it might be trying to, to curve away from the bias. I was trying to decide at my five spot if I wanted Derek White or Drew Holiday. Derek White or Drew Holiday. I'm angry about that. Yeah. I, I'm sure you are. Yeah. I'm sure um, are. So is that because you think Derek White is better in the paint and in sort of backline situations, whereas Drew Holiday is more of the point of attack specialist, like 
we just throw you out on whoever's running your offense and and good luck. Like DeMar DeRozan, you're going to deal with 40 minutes a game of Drew Holiday. It's going to feel like he's in your shorts. Those those quads and those hips that are just extraordinarily <laughs> strong. He's going to just wrap himself around your legs the entire game. It's not suitable for work. Stand back. Um, is that sort of what you're thinking? It's just I think they're both really different kinds of defenders like you said drew holiday is much better in isolation i think he's more of like the marcus smart where he's like super strong i know there were multiple times in the in the hawk series in 2021 because that's i don't maybe that's where i think the peak is where like he's 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 the main defender on john collins and sometimes he's the main defender in trey young so like they throw it into john collins he's just stonewalling him stripping him uh in the paint um, I, I think that Drew Holiday doesn't always have the best off-ball instincts, though. Like, there are some times where I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm being held back a little bit from thinking you're the best defender in the league, I'm the best wing to, uh, guard defender in the league, because I think he does have some of the abilities, but he falls asleep sometimes. He does make just all-time level gutsy, I'm going to make this play and win the game. Like, I think the famous blocks Marcus Martin and strips him at half court in game five of, was that 2022? All-time Bucks play. Just, just unbelievable type stuff there. Whereas, like you said, Derek White, uh, I think he's... I don't know. He's like quicker when it comes to closing out. The arms allow him to close out with a little bit more moxie. He can contest some of those higher jumpers more. And of course, he has the rim protection. Man, you really like Derek White. I really like Derek White. This is is fun. This is fun. I'm (laughs) glad we're doing this. Glad we're doing this. Um, I hope I'm not proven wrong. I hope I hope the people are like I hope there's a couple Celtics or Spurs people that are like, yeah, man, Derek White rules. You well, this, you get, the Spurs people are going to be with you. Yeah, uh, if we had Danny Green first last time, we would have been we would have been celebrated by the entire city of San Antonio. <laughs> uh, Drew Holiday in EPM, he is top ten among guards a uh, number of times between 2017 and 2021. Top top 25. A couple times as well, and in the playoffs, we don't because he because he, he didn't miss the playoffs so many times in New Orleans and all that. We don't have a ton of data, but if you look at like something close to a large sample stretch over the decade, um, he does his teams do look like they're about three points better on defense per one hundred when he's on the court, and he plays on very good defenses, obviously, especially in Milwaukee. Marcus Smart, Marcus Smart. I think statistically looks even better going back to 2017 when I think he really starts to like, Hey, this guy's a really good defender all the way through yeah, probably his defensive peak. The last couple seasons winning defensive player of the year, he finishes in the top 10 among guards four times in EPM. He's first in 2019, 16th overall. And last year when he won defensive player of the year, he was 13th overall in that stat. So these guys all look like heavy hitters. Cody and they look like heavy hitters in stats like this and of course they look like heavy hitters when you look at like matchup data and you're like who guards the best players and all who's versatile who guards multiple positions and I think they look like heavy hitters on film we've done breakdowns uh, of a lot of these guys before smart in particular Drew Holiday going back to what he's able to do Drew is interesting because to me he's like a sentinel in the playoffs You say, okay, you go slow down this one player. I want you to make Devin Booker's life hell for the next three games. That's that's your job. And how valuable is that these days if you can chip away at the head of the snake, even if you're not, you know, super aware off ball. I agree. I think he is giving something back a little bit off ball. Well, saying that 
Drew Holiday's still skilled enough that he'll make crazy, incredible off-ball plays. So there's only two more guys on my list that I need to sort out, but, you know, someone please come help me work through how to differentiate this. <laughs> All right. Do you, do you want me to bring up one of these two guys? Because I, I, I have a feeling I know who the last two guys are. I think we have the same last two guys. I hope we have the same last two guys, man. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Oh. I, I was trying to think. That, there was a silence there where I was trying to think of like the most random player I could, and I just drew a blank. So let me ask you, what do you think about Alex Caruso? Oh, Alex Caruso is really good at defense. I'm yeah. glad you asked. He's an excellent defensive yeah. player. That yeah. I love. Like One of my favorite Thinking Basketball videos is the Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso yep. are just like causing yep. mayhem video, and I know Mike De La Rosa has a video on that. There's a lot of Alex Caruso love, a lot of Lonzo Ball love. Take it away, Ben. Tell me about Alex Caruso. The motor, the size... The strength, the angles, the hand speed, the anticipation, the awareness of screens makes Alex Caruso an extraordinarily disruptive point of attack defender. All of those things are working together to where you're watching teams try to run their offense sometimes and you're like, who is this dude with the headband just absolutely mucking up everything they're trying to do? And in addition to that, you know, how much we've talked around awareness. These guys aren't on the back line. How much is like understanding scheme, communicating with your big man? Um, he seems to be really on top of that when I watch film. Like he seems to know what everyone wants to do all the time and doesn't really ever get caught with his proverbial pants down. Like there's just, there is a, there is a, a sturdiness to his role that I think is carried through from the Los Angeles championship teams to Chicago. He also looks great in these stats that we've been talking about. Um, in fact, in 2021, he was first among guards, fourth overall in the league. So, you know, he's right there for me. I actually, it's hard for me to figure out like just how valuable, just how high Caruso can be. Such a big body. He's so quick for his size. He's got such a high motor. He's got so many things working. What, what, what do you think? Well, I'm trying to pull it up right now because off the top of my head, doesn't he kind of have the minutes thing as Matisse Thibel? Isn't he a guy that doesn't often play like 30-plus minutes a game? He's kind of in the uh, – I'm looking at it right now. The most he's ever played in the regular season was in 2022, and he only played 41 games. He played 28 minutes a game. That's his peak. Otherwise, he's in that 20s area. In the playoffs, he also peaked at 28 minutes a game. So it feels like he's in the same situation as Matisse Thibel in terms of that. Oh, man, ah, that's such a great point. That's such a great point because I, I think the reason why it's so compelling with him is that his motor is such uh, a big part of what we're talking about. And if he had to play more minutes with that chip away, at his motor to say nothing of if he had any offensive responsibilities. But uh, yeah, I think he would have to go in the in that same group with those other three guys with the minutes and the health. His isn't health. It's just about minutes. But to me, there is a difference between 20. I think you're, you can count on 24, 25 awesome minutes from Caruso. We've seen that before. But like 36 minutes a game? If you can play that, how much, how much impact can you have? I mean, that's, that's one and a half times more basketball. That's 50% that's more basketball. That's a lot. So... Oh, I'm going to, okay, let me, let me marinate in this for a second. Cody, Cody, say things about, you know, oh, wait, there's one more guy we haven't mentioned, right? Yeah, there's actually another guy that was an honorable <laughs> mention that I feel like, you know, I'll vamp on him for a second uh, before we get to the last remaining guy, because we didn't talk about DeJounte Murray at all. 
And I think DeJounte Murray is just a really interesting defender, super long. I think he's another one, actually. He's in the Victor Oladipo camp where he has this ACL tear in 2018. And I think ever since then, he didn't quite hit that peak again. So I think in those like early 2017-ish Spurs times, uh, he look, he looks incredible. He's like 6'5". He's maybe the biggest guy out of all of these in this group. Maybe like Clay Thompson's taller, but like the length and the height, no one else is quite like him. But, uh, you know, he's young, doesn't quite have the angular understanding of some of these other guys. I just want to shout out DeJounte Murray really quick. Okay, a shout out. Yeah, a shout out. For me, it's a shout out is acceptable. Not okay. not an honorable mention. He gets a shout out. Yeah. Okay. And then our um, final player, Ben, I'm guessing, uh, you want to talk about Tony Allen. Trick or, trick or treat, Tony Allen. Yeah. <laughs> what? That's what Bill Simmons used to call him. Trick or treat, Tony. Maybe his dad. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah, trick or treat, Tony. Back That's when he played incredible. for the Celtics. Tony, Tony Allen's really interesting because there is definitely part of me that goes, man, he was like, quicker and more athletic when he played for the Celtics. But then, of course, everything about Tony Allen, Grit and Grind Grizzlies, the great defender, is in Memphis 2013, 2014, 2015. I don't know how far into the future it goes. Does 2016 part of that? Uh, is it part of that stretch of, of peak defense from him? I don't know. But um, he is another big guy. He's 6'4 or so. Um stronger at that point in his career, sturdy. I think something I texted you before the show is like, does he ever guard point guards? It's really interesting because they just they just stick him on wings. There's the Oklahoma City series. He guards Kevin Durant. I legit felt bad for 2014 Kevin Durant. It's like, that's the MVP of the league. And Tony Allen is just all over him. He's making it hard to get, get him the ball in the post. Um, he's making it hard for him to shoot and get to his spots, even though he's giving up six inches. Strong, good feet, good hands. And the thing that's cool about Tony Allen, and it kind of reminded me of like a smaller wing, like mini Kawhi-ish. He, and he's not as devastating as a nail defender as Kawhi, so don't take that as a literal comparison. But what Tony Allen does is he goes and guards and shuts down like some player, but he doesn't skirt his help responsibilities. Like he digs down, he tags when he needs to. So he's still part of the ecosystem without overly specializing and giving up a ton of off-ball uh, impact. He's not a wrecking ball off-ball, but it's just really fascinating to think about like point of attack, elite wings, elite scores, but also he's really buttoned up in everything else you want to do in your scheme. So um yeah, I'm very impressed with Tony Allen. He's, he's going to be near the top of my final list here. I'm glad you said buttoned up because I actually went in and my my memory of Tony Allen was more of like a Patrick Beverly where he's out there just like, ah, I'm Mr. Defense. I'm going to like destroy everything. But he was actually like a lot more contained defensively. Like I didn't see him making a lot of like physical or dumb mistakes. He was extraordinarily active. I actually was really impressed with some of his off ball stuff. The digs, his ability to dig down on a driver or somebody posting up and then still recover to his man. I saw him recovering to, to his teammates men a couple of times to get the contest because he just knew he could get there. Uh, a couple of times I saw him sprinting through through screens. I don't think he's the best pick Dodger, but I think for his size, I was pretty impressed with his ability to get around those screens. That uh, that uh, aforementioned passing lane stat from Basketball Index, like I said, it only goes back to 2017, but in 2017, Tony Allen had like 6.5 
which would have been first in the league in 2017 uh, out of players that played a thousand minutes or so. So I think we can assume that he'd even be more active when he's younger, more athletic and things like that. So uh, this is a big dude. This is a strong dude. Really good off-ball instincts. I think he could maybe gamble sometimes or maybe overestimate his ability to recover. But overall, I love your description of buttoned up. I think that was what I came away from. It's like, this is just a really solid defensive guy that gets the assignment. Yeah, and he he pops um, maybe the most of anyone in some of these high-level stats we've been talking about. He has a monster adjusted plus-minus season back in 2013. But in EPM, Cody... First among guards in 2014, first among guards in 2015, third among guards in 2016, first among guards in 2017, and in 2015, as a 6'4 guard, he was first overall in the entire NBA in estimated plus minus. In the playoffs from 2010 to 2016, his teams were four points better per 100 when he was on the court, which is a nice signal there. The thing is, he was playing for elite defenses. They were minus eight. These are, these are spectacularly good playoff defenses. So I, I think in terms of these high-level statistics that we've been trying to keep in mind in the background, um, he, he looks spectacular there. I, I, are you ready? To, I, I, I think I have a list. I think I have a list. And I'm going to change me, it right when we finish recording. Let me, let me add one Tony Allen thing. I'm going to be a little bit the rain on the parade thing here again. Regular season, especially after like 2010, it doesn't really look like he passes 26 minutes a game too much. It looks like one time in the playoffs he gets above 30 minutes per game. In 2014, he's playing 33 minutes. But other than that, 27 minutes, 24 minutes, 28 minutes. I think that's still more minutes than we were just talking about with Caruso and, and Theibel. But again, this isn't a guy that's out there for you know 37 minutes a game. I, I just watched that some of that 2014 playoffs that you were talking about. Okay. And uh, he can go thirty. He can go thirty-five minutes, no problem, okay. no problem. He, <laughs> you might be able to play him forty minutes if you weren't worried about offense and rest and things like that. It's, it's this is what's so tricky because how much of this is just they can't play thirty-six minutes a game because of their offense, and yeah. maybe if they were on another team that could support that or a coach that was willing to, you know, Larry Brown as an example, one of the all-time great defensive coaches. And wherever he goes, he's going to insert more defensive players into the lineup. So I don't know. Maybe instead of constantly playing Eric Snow at point guard, he's like, eh, Tony Allen, uh, you know, Alex Caruso, you play 37 minutes a game and just dribble the ball and make some basic passes. You can do it. Um, you know, you can do it. Yeah, that's <laughs> – I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. The minutes per game thing – I don't want it to factor into my final assessment, but now that I'm like really concerned, I'm considering it live here for the first time. I didn't think it would be such a thing, but there's actually quite a gap between a couple of these guys we just talked about. So, uh, what are you thinking, Ben? Do you want you want okay, to who's, your list? Yeah, let's do it. We have to do it. I'm just hoping if we end the show and maybe no one will notice that we didn't do a list, but um, let's <laughs> let's plug our noses and take the proverbial plunge. Um, you want to who do, who do you want to do at number five? I. Okay, so on my this actual is list, they're all so close. On my actual list, man, I have Drew Holiday, but now I'm considering I'm like, 
Drew Holiday throughout like these playoff runs is averaging 38, 39 minutes a game. Yeah. He's like a key offensive cog, so he's putting a lot of effort into there. As opposed to somebody like, I don't know, Thibel or Caruso, who's running in as like the fourth or fifth option on offense and plays 25 minutes. I don't know. That's breaking my brain right now, Ben. It is live breaking my brain. Hmm. My brain feels similarly broken by this conundrum. Um, I think I'm going to go... Yeah, because all these stats we've been citing are per 100 possessions. Mm-hmm. So if if you play less and you're more specialized, then I think it's easier to pop in per 100 possessions. But then you have to remember, if you like play half as much as the other guy and you're a plus four and the other guy's a plus three, then your per game impact isn't actually as good as the other guy who plays you know 40 minutes a game to your 20. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I... I think I have a top five that I... I don't want to say I like. There's no top five that I'm going to put here that I like. I think I will go Jason Kidd number five. Okay. We'll do 2008 Jason Kidd number five. I'll I'll tell you, I don't have much to contribute on that because I just forgot he existed. Okay. Are you going Drew Holiday? You're making... I guess guess I've been making my list all along. I'm I'm going to go... Yeah, I'm I'm going to let you work through it. I'm going to let you work through it I'm going to go Drew Holiday. I'm going to go Drew Holiday number four. Okay. And we'll pick, you know, 2020, 20, pick a Bucks year, pick yeah. a Milwaukee Bucks year for Drew Holiday. We'll have him fourth. I, I think I'm going to go Caruso third. Okay. I don't know. The minutes thing is really killing me. Yeah. It's really ki- Okay. I'm going to change it on the fly. I'm going to go Holiday third, Caruso fourth. Mm. Go Holiday third, Caruso fourth. We'll do, and I know now that we're back with the minutes thing. Um <laughs> I guess we'll do Tony Allen second and Smart first. That's that's what we're gonna do. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't feel good about it. I don't feel great about it. My, my list, the list that I had before the show, and now this is with the whole minutes per game thing, throwing it all in flux. I drew Holiday five, Alex Caruso four, Matisse Thibel third, Tony Allen second, Marcus Smart first. Okay. Oh. Anything else you want to say before we we wrap this series? Man. I feel like we could just talk about this forever. I really loved this series. I could talk about defense, you know, forever. It's um, You could talk about defense indefinitely. It's really fascinating. Would you have, if you go back to the big men, would you have any of these small players uh, competing with the big men? Or Not even close. Not even close. What about the wings? Any wings? Maybe the top wings could get to the top 10 of big men for me. Oh, you're talking wings to, to big men. Uh, well, know. we did wings in episode two. Yeah, are you saying yeah. that, like, because you, you had Paul George, number one, I'm pretty sure, on your list. Are you saying that Paul George would be competing with, like, Jaron Jackson or Tim Duncan, who are at the bottom of your list? Yeah, I think maybe not them specifically, because they were number eight or seven or something like that. But I think once you get to around the top ten, um, from what I mapped out for big men, hmm. I think you can start talking about the best wings, Kawhi and Paul George. Oh, spoilers, if you haven't gone back and (laughs) listened to those episodes, I apologize. I think that's about right. Top 10, top 15 big men. I don't think the top five big men uh, can be impeached by any of these other players that we've discussed in the last two episodes. Too too much value. They do too much. Could you take any of these wings, like we just talked about Marcus Smart, Tony Allen, how close would they be making it to the wings list? Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Um, we cheated, of course. We only did top five wings, so we we kind of truncated that, remember? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember. So, yeah. 
I think they're pretty close. Um, I wouldn't have any of them in my top five. I think when you, again, when you get to top 10 with some of these smalls, I would start to consider it. Yeah. Yeah. Top 10 or 15. That's an interesting pattern. I think top 10 or 15 bigs, you can start to consider the the highest wings for me. And top 10 or 15 wings, you can start to consider the highest guards for me. And in both the wings and the guards, size makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, who's who's the shortest of these guards that we just talked about here? Are any of them under 6'4"? Marcus Smart has got to be the shortest also. 6'3". Also, this is just weird. If you want to talk about, like, checking biases, this is weird (laughs) for me. This is really weird for me that the top, quote-unquote, top two guys, because I don't know how I feel about this order, are both guards that were, like, big offensive stars from Oklahoma State back-to-back that were also drafted by the Celtics and became defensive specialists for the Celtic? What kind of weird situation is this that we have with the best best small defenders were Oklahoma State shooting guards? Wait, you say Tony Allen was an offensive star? At Oklahoma State. Well, I'm saying, isn't that what he's known for when he was in college? Like he's he's the he's the leader of the team. He's the leading scorer on the team. I actually I, didn't know that. That would blow my mind. If no, Tony, I can't imagine Tony Allen's offense being ever particularly that good. Tony Allen, Oklahoma State, 2004, averaged 16 points a game, okay. three assists. I don't know how you look up anything else about that. I don't know. I think you need Kyle here for this. I think he would be. He'd be Kyle going Mann. off about some stories that that Tony, Tony he would, would have. He would know this. I, wasn't he? Wasn't he probably the player of the year in the conference? Really outside of my wheel. You might as well ask me about Game of Thrones at this point. Man, uh, he was. He was the 2004 Player of the Year. Good for him. At Oklahoma State, and then Marcus Smart was the 2013 Player of the Year. <laughs> what is happening? That's incredible. Uh, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Um, also, if, if you haven't seen it yet, the Wilt Chamberlain documentary Goliath is on Showtime with Paramount Plus. Hope you enjoyed this uh, brief, quick, little uh, series, this three-part series on the defenders of the last 15 years. It, it was an idea that came out of our Discord community, uh, which has all kinds of contributions and ideas to our content, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. If you want to sign up for that. Otherwise, thanks as always for listening all the way through. And of course, wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day.